Canada. And we're live. Uh, welcome to the Interop. This show is all about exploring the decentralized economic networks that make up the interchain. And my hope is that my listeners will gain a better understanding of the technology of these networks, the technologies that make them possible, and the opportunities that it provides to investors and developers. I'm Seb 3.0. Today, I'm with Arjun Bhaptani, who's the project lead at Connext. Hey, Arjun. Thanks. Thanks for having me, Seb. How are you doing? <laughs> good, good. It's great to have you on. It's great to connect again. Uh, before we get started, though, I'd like to say, you know, if you'd like to stay up to date and get alerted with each new live stream that do, we do here on the Interop, make sure to subscribe and be sure to hit the like button because that makes me happy. Also, if you'd like to support this podcast, you can stake with Interop. Uh, we're currently live on Evmos and we're adding new validators soon. And you'll find links to that down in the show notes. With that out of the way, uh, yeah, thanks for coming on. And I'm really excited to talk about Connects. Um, you know, I think when we last met it was in amsterdam we we're at a dinner and i was like i want to get you on the podcast and i want to get like all the other bridges and so far i think we've had three so <laughs> we're on our way to getting to you know having like all the bridges uh on the podcast but um happy to get you on uh uh now so we can talk about uh connects and how uh, how it's unique sort of in this you know in this broader bridge landscape absolutely Cool. So yeah, you know, for, for listeners who are not familiar, uh, tell us a bit about your background and like how you became to be project lead at Connect. Yeah. Um, uh, let's see. Um, I have a background in physics. Uh, I started in crypto specifically building on top, like infrastructure on top of Ethereum in like 2016. Um, I was just really interested at the time in like, um, basically public infrastructure building, infrastructure like the internet that is not like owned by companies or owned by governments um, but it's still like globally accessible to everybody um, uh, I think ethereum was like the first instance that I've I'd ever seen of like a platform that enabled that and I thought that that I still think that, that that's like an incredibly powerful primitive um, that will help to just like radically change the way that the types of like power structures that exist in the world today um, uh, and uh, and I ended up starting Connext because, and you know, as a result of working in the space for like a year and just uh, mostly just in 20, it was 2016, so nobody really had any uh, anything real at the time. It was basically just like all theoretical stuff and people experimenting. It was a really, really exciting time. Um, and as a result of, of that time, I, I kind of got a lot of conviction around Ethereum and uh, and around blockchains in general, and um, and became convinced that like really like I needed to do something in this space. And, and so we, we started Connects with this idea of like, let's figure out how to build, bring this technology to a billion users. Um, very broad mission, um, uh, but very, it's interesting because that broad mission led us to a very, very specific problem pretty much immediately, which was scalability. Uh, because like the number one thing that we would hit whenever we talked to anybody in the space was just like, oh, it costs $40 to mint this like NFT ticket. And like, you know, that's obviously never going to work for any user. Um, and so we, uh, Connects ended up becoming one of the first like layer two projects on Ethereum. We built the first, we actually built the first actual layer two on Ethereum. Um, it was a state channel network in partnership with Spankchain. Um, we were one of the first like R and D teams working on scalability alongside folks like Matic, um, Loom at the time, which is another Plasma project, um, uh, Omise Go, uh, and, and all of the people spun out from that and ended up starting Optimism. Um, and and uh, like a handful of other researchers that were just around early and really curious about these problems. Um, we've obviously come a long way since then, and we've also pivoted a little bit from scalability to interop. You're, you're dropping some mad 2017 Ethereum names here, you know, like Spank Chain and uh, <laughs> and, and all these projects that um, you know 
sort of have fizzled out of I think like the the limelight of limelight you know, <laughs> of, of, of Ethereum. Um, no, that's cool. I didn't realize that you know you guys have been working on this stuff so you know so, so for so long, and uh, that connects that you know this uh, this history that spanned back to the the last uh, the last uh, cycle. Um, you know it, when it comes to you know the Ethereum space and you know the um, the the expansion of that ecosystem in the last couple of years, you know, with like all these rollups and now like all these EVM chains. I was looking at the Connects Bridge website earlier and just scrolling through like the list of <laughs> all these EVM chains. Um, you know, can you can you describe what this means to you in terms of like the maturity of the ecosystem? Is it you know, are we going towards an ecosystem that will have you know, tons of EVMs or is this a trend that will eventually end up shrinking back to maybe like a few core uh, chains? Or, you know, wh where do you think this is heading more in the long term? Yeah, that's a really good question. Um, so back in 2020, we developed, we, we pivoted into bridging because we developed this hypothesis that there were just too many, too many of our friends that were like research teams were building rollups like Optimism, Arbitrum, ZKs, and Guitar. And they were, they were all extremely, extremely high quality teams that were backed by extremely, extremely high quality investors. And like, it just, to us, it seemed like absolutely impossible that we just didn't end up with heterogeneity and fragmentation, right? And, uh, and honestly, that made sense. Like it, it's like having everything happen on a single rollup or a single execution layer just doesn't make sense for the scalability of Ethereum. Um, and, uh, and it doesn't make sense for the scalability of blockchains in general. Um, I think, what we've the ecosystem has started heading towards now is this is this idea of like modular blockchain. So basically, separating out the core pieces of the of like what comprises a blockchain into the individual kind of layers of of value um, uh, and and modularizing them and packaging up them up and kind of making them interoperable and swappable with each other. So you have things like data availability layers like um, you know Celestia, um, Polygon Avail, etc. Um, sediment layers like Ethereum, and then execution layers like Optimism, Arbitrum, et cetera. Um, I think right now, like, you know, over the course of the, the bull market, obviously there was just like a ton of people that entered into the space. And, and so we saw this like rapid expansion and uh, it became really like, it was a very easy playbook. Uh, if, if you were starting a project, it, there was like a period of a golden window where it was a very easy playbook to just like start a chain because the, like it was, Polygon had gone and like already figured out exactly the right way to do that. Um, you could just copy paste their model. And as long as you executed well, you could scale like an ecosystem on top of your chain. And then that would accrue a lot of value to your token. And I think a lot of people realize like, okay, we can actually move to this kind of world. Now, of course, you know, uh, everything is down, uh, like usage in this entire space is shrunk. Like nobody's really using any applications anymore. And that's, that's to be expected because it's a bear market and capital is shrunk. But like, because of that, I think um, we're starting to see a little bit of a consolidation. So a lot of the ones, a lot of the chains that didn't end up like kind of hitting that exit velocity have now sort of are starting to like fizzle out or probably will fizzle out eventually. But I don't think that that idea is gone. And, and I think like what this market has sort of shown us is like there is a need for moving to multiple different execution environments. Like we need that from a scalability perspective. Um, and this is obviously a core part of the Cosmos thesis too. Um, and then in addition to that, we we also 
probably now need to do a better job of making sure like people people sort of now need to do a better job of like understanding like which chains are actually high value, which ones are low value, which ones are gonna actually have the staying power. My thesis is every single major rollup brand or chain brand is going to self-fragment into many, many different chains. They're all going to build their own modular layers. Um, so like ZK Sync is gonna be a, build a DA layer. Starkware is gonna build a DA layer. Polygon is building a DA layer. Arbitrum and Optimism are gonna do the exact same thing. And then they are all gonna roll out multiple execution environments because ultimately it's their brand that matters, right? And like the defensibility around building a, a single rollup is really just not very high. Um, so yes, I think the ultimate outcome is like, we'll end up in kind of a hybrid state where it's like, we'll have a lot of different chains, a lot of you know different chain-like experiences that'll be out there and they'll be heterogeneous, they'll be kind of cool. But the number of brands may not actually be as high as, as people think. Like there'll be like a set of Arbitrum chains, a set of Optimism chains, a set of ZK Sync chains, et cetera. Yeah, I, I, I have a similar, I guess I, my, my, my view um, like where the ecosystem is going in the next few years is a similar one where I think that you know, the, there was a proliferation, say, oh, the last the last um, cycle was a proliferation in DeFi experimentation, mostly on Ethereum. And now what we're seeing is like a proliferation of uh, chains um, with their own ecosystems, only the core difference in how things were done previously and how things are done now is now every ecosystem will be a data availability layer and um sovereign roll-ups will uh will you know uh, um, verify the state uh back on on that data availability there and that i think that's really the the play for the next cycle and at the end of the cycle we'll see who um you know have, have become sort of the winners of that uh of that competition and yeah you know, obviously like ethereum has and you know ethereum after the merge like has a, a strong chance of of being uh, one of the strong players there you know, we have platforms like Celestia that are also playing uh, in this in this field. And then there's things that are a little bit uh, not so clear, right? Because it's like, I mean, it's 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 like a different uh, paradigm, and it's it's difficult to see how it'll interplay with that. So things like like Bitcoin, right? Like how will Bitcoin yeah. you know fit in this broader paradigm? Should it? actually fit with the paradigm. Fit um, things like Solana, right? Yep. I think they're sort of on the uh, on the periphery of like this vision. And then to some extent, you know, the sovereign Cosmos SDK chain, right? Like any yep. any sovereign Cosmos SDK chain that operates with its own validator set, will that design the protocol design stack and security um, uh, design um, continue to be relevant and continue to work into the future where uh, you know, they'll be competing against you know, data, high, high data availability uh, protocols. So yeah, it's, yeah. it's going to be interesting to see how it plays out over the next couple of years. But one thing that is certain is that like interoperability between all of these things is going to be super, super important. And that yeah. brings you, you know, that brings us to our conversation here. Um, you know, one of the things that I wanted to ask you is, you know, on your website, it says that you're building the internet of Ethereum. Uh, which I thought was yeah. interesting because, you know, in, in Cosmos, yeah. we always talk about the internet of blockchains. So yep. what is the internet of Ethereum and how is it different from like the internet of blockchains uh, thesis as it's described <laughs> in Cosmos? It's really not. I think it's uh, it's basically just a, it's like, 
a mental model that we've seen like kind of resonated with a lot of people like, you know, building on top of interacting with Ethereum based blockchains that like um, makes sense. And to be honest, I really think like the Cosmos Internet of blockchain vision is the right vision, right? It's and like, I think like multiple different organizations and projects have approached it from different directions. And like, we're trying to approach it from our own direction as well. Of course, that, that sentence you know, right there is going to make a great clip, by the way. <laughs> yeah, it, it, I, I mean, I think it's like it is it, when you have a bunch of different individual teams, like, you know, and organizations, the institution, like ecosystems, finding like the same solution from different directions. That means it's the right solution, right? Like we are we are heading towards the global optimal, which will be something cosmos like, right? That like, you know, everybody initially thought was going to be either a monolithic chain or something that was basically like a bunch of shards that were cross-linking, but really it's going to be like a bunch of modular execution layers that are going to end up interacting with each other in a in very similar way to like how Cosmos works. Um, and uh, and so I think like, I think it makes sense. Um, I, I think like we've specified Ethereum just because at the moment we're focused on EVM chains. Um, that's a matter of just like pragmatism. It's we don't want to stretch ourselves too thin and like we we want to like try to corner a market that make, like, like really we know well and we, we already operate in. But we have a, I personally have like a, a lot of love for Cosmos. I have always thought it was a very, very amazing ecosystem. And like, you know, my goal is to to work with a Cosmos ecosystem eventually, no matter what. So um, yeah, I think eventually like we will have this like heterogeneous net, network of chains that will be, uh, that will be its own kind of internet. <laughs> yeah, I think I think we're relying on, on that. Um, and not, not surprisingly, um, you know, what, what's, What's unique about building bridges on EVM chains? I think like a lot of people that are listening to this podcast perhaps are more familiar with like the particularities of Cosmos and the, um, the, IBC, the way things, yeah. things IBC work. Yeah. And so what is particular about building on EVM chains? And, you know, I think in that question is what is particular about building bridges to and from version one Ethereum? Um, yeah. 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 Um, so I think um, maybe before jumping into that, let me give it a, a little bit of a just like a quick overview of the different kinds of bridges that are out there. So in that way, people get an understanding of like what options are even on the table to begin with. So so like uh, and like what the trade offs are of those different options, and like how they work, the way that they work, why they work the way that they work. Um, I think the one that I, most people are very, very familiar with now and, and is still absolutely terrifying to me is multi-sig bridges. So some sort of like M of N mechanism where you have um, you know, at the, at the worst case, it's like a single custodial actor that is relaying data across chains. Um, and then, you know, can kind of be like a multi-sig MPC system that is like a sub like five of seven or whatever. Um, and then scale up to something like Axlar, which has like a, you know, like a permissionless, uh, Cosmos chain and, and like that validator set is now like relaying data. Um, and of course these things have like incrementally more, more security, but there are still like upper theoretical upper limitations to like the security that you get out of that because, um, you know, you're you're effectively trusting the security of some intermediate set of actors, and like that intermediate set of actors has not just the ability, like unlike with the blockchain, where you can you you know if you have a controlling stake, you could censor the chain um, or you could fork it, but you can't actually like steal people's funds. People will just fork away. Um, with with a with a bridge, like that that bridge is effectively an oracle between two systems, right? So if you if you control a majority stake, you can produce invalid updates, and those invalid updates can be used to steal funds. So to us, it seems like even if you can say, all right, like 
the economic security provided by, you know, a permissionless validator set is is pretty awesome because, you know, it works for Cosmos and like for a bunch of Cosmos chains and it works for Ethereum and a bunch of Ethereum chains. We think that the added risk of the fact that you can actually steal funds from the system simply by being that middle, middle actor makes those kinds of bridges more trusted, right? There is a trust assumption there. Um, but of course, they're easier to build, way easier to build, way easier to deploy places. And uh, they let you do basically whatever you want, right? You could send any kind of message through them. Um, now, the the other ones are ones that I think people are less familiar with. So so IBC is probably like extremely well-known in Cosmos because it is a fantastic um, option and fantastic ecosystem. IBC relies on like client header verification. So what you do is you basically have two chains uh, verify the consensus of each other. And because they're verifying the consensus of each other, you know that an update is valid because the uh, the entire uh, validator set of this chain came to consensus that the consensus of the other chain was correct. Um, so it's a way for chains to natively talk to each other. It's an extremely, extremely powerful tool. Um, of course, it's also very, very trust minimized because you know, in order to fool the system, you have to actually compromise an entire chain. Um, and so like you're not adding any additional assumptions beyond the ones that you'd already be making. However, the downside to something like IBC is IBC works really, really well between chains that are exactly the same and have the same consensus mechanism. IBC is balloons in complexity when you start dealing with things that have different kinds of consensus mechanisms. And in many cases, you actually can't prove consensus on chain. So like, for example, um, you know, Ethereum, ETH POW is extremely, it is, I mean, you can, you can kind of do it with zero knowledge proofs. It's still extremely expensive. Um, it is extraordinarily expensive to try to prove Ethereum L1's consensus on chain right now. Um, and that's because blockchains went through this really annoying phase where like they tried to be memory hard, basically have like memory hard consensus algorithms in order to have basic resistance. It didn't work at all. It was a terrible idea. But as a result of that, it's very, very different, difficult to build like clients of Ethereum right now. Um, and so because it's difficult to build like clients of Ethereum, it's, very, it's even more difficult to put those like clients on chain. And then it gets even weirder after that. So it's like, you know, that's, that's how you can think about something like Ethereum. But then what about rollups running on top of Ethereum? Um, how do you prove, how do you build a like client to a ZK rollup that is sitting on another chain? It's a kind of an open question. Um, how do you have like client-based communication between optimistic rollups? Well, you can't because... With an optimistic rollup, you have rollback risk. So now there is a, you know, you could send a message across chains, but there is a risk that at some point within the next seven days that that entire rollup is going to be rolled back. And then like everything that was in that message is completely wrong. Um, so I think the the kind of key issue that comes into play with light clients outside of Cosmos is that the surface area that you now have to think about, the complexity of implementation that you now have to think about is much higher. Um, you have to go build custom implementations for every new kind of consensus algorithm. Not only is that a ton of engineering effort and research effort, but also it massively increases your likelihood of actually having a bug, right? Because you're having to write a shit ton more code and audit a shit ton more code all the time. And one bug anywhere in that system can ripple out to other chains very, very easily because of like the inherent contagion risk of, of bridges. Um, no, I, I have a, a uh, I've talked a bit about like locally verified systems that things like atomic swaps, but I, I'm starting to, to think more and more that those don't really count as like bridges because what they're effectively doing is like swapping assets on one chain for another, right? You're not actually having like native communication. Um, and so if we, if we kind of leave that to the side for now, the only, the last type of bridge is optimistic bridges. Um, and that's, that's kind of what Nomad uh, had been working on. And now I think a lot of other projects have, have gotten optimistic bridge pilled because we've been chilling them a lot. 
Um, and so they're pivoting into the optimistic model as well. And optimistic bridges are like very like similar kind of core concept. It's, they're sort of like, you can think of like light clients as like ZK rollups um, and other validity proof systems. And then optimistic bridges is like optimistic rollups. Um, where in an optimistic bridge, you know, you, you, it lives entirely on top of the execution layer. It's really, really easy to build. Um, it's, it's fairly trust minimized, very, actually very trust minimized, gives you pretty good, very, very like good trust assumptions uh, in practice. But um, uh, the trade-off is there's latency because you, you send a message across chains and now you have a set of watchers that are like uh, watching to see if fraud has occurred. And so every message takes 30 minutes. So the, the kind of takeaway here is like there is trade-offs to every approach. Um, and uh, and the, the, the trade-offs are magnified in Ethereum because on Ethereum, it's just already become this very like heterogeneous muddled uh, ecosystem where there's a lot of different kinds of chains and different kinds of execution environments. Yeah, no, I, I think that about sums it up. And w w I wanted to come back to to the, the the different types of bridges. And you guys have a great post on your on your blog where you walk through like this natively verified, uh, which you which you described earlier, and is what IBC does, where you have like one chain verifying another chain, externally verified, where you have uh, essentially you know a group of actors that is. Um, through a multi-sig or through some sort of like orchestration mechanism, verifying each chain and then passing messages. So like a simple example of this would be a multi-sig, a, a more complex example would be a set of validators, something like Axelar. Um, and then we have locally verified and like connects falls into this category. But I, I, I guess when I was reading the post, like it wasn't obvious, obvious to me how natively verified and locally verified actually are, are different yeah. at practical level. So like yeah. what on chain, what is actually happening and what is performing the verification? Yeah, so this is one of the reasons why I was kind of saying I, I sort of moving away from the model where I consider locally verified systems bridges rather than just like liquidity networks um, and like mechanisms to get tokens across chains. Um, and the reason is that, it need, so what's happening in a locally verified system? So examples of this are like atomic swaps or things like hop, right? Where what you have is you have an actor that has liquidity on one chain uh, and, and liquidity on another chain. And like you send liquidity over here and then they send liquidity over here. And uh, that can happen through whatever mechanism, but you can actually keep that fairly trust minimized. But what you're doing as a user is you have a one-to-one -one relationship with this actor. And because you have a one-to-one -one relationship, you can swap assets with them without ever interacting with the rest of the chain. So the rest of the chain doesn't even really need to care that this happened. They're just like, oh, this person just sent a transaction from the perspective of the chain is just like a normal transfer, right? Um, this is of course different than a light client-based system because in a light client-based system, you actually have like fully expressive communication. You're not just like, oh, I'm, it's not just like, oh, I'm interacting with a counterparty to do like something where the counterparty and I can just, just like negotiate some agreement to do something. Um, there's an entirely different set of use cases which are generalized, and I can get into those in a second, but an entirely different set of use cases which are generalized that can only be done if like one chain is actually able to prove messages to another chain. Um, and that's kind of outside of the scope of locally verified systems, because you're sort of saying, we don't need to prove anything if like you and I can just negotiate something between the two of us. Now, where does that difference lie? That's actually really, really interesting thing that like I think we have explored quite a bit because we really wanted to like push the limits of, of locally verified systems as much as we could. Um, and I don't think a lot of people have as good of an intuition about. Um, and what we found is like, if you take like a range of use cases, right? So for example, let's say you are 
um, this is an Ethereum based example, but I guess it can work on osmosis too. So say you want to like swap on osmosis, um, and, but you are a user on another chain. That can happen in using a locally verified system. And the reason that that can happen is because, you know, what I can do with you, Seb, is I can, you know, you want to swap um, USDC to Osmo. I can basically just pay you. I can, I can put up some funds and say, here is $100 worth of USDC. If you go swap $97 worth of USDC into Osmo and send the Osmo to me. And that 100, 100 USDC is locked in escrow until you actually send that transaction to me. And what I've basically done is I've done cross-chain communication, right? Like I have off-chain interacted with you, negotiated this agreement. You have done this transaction on my behalf and paid me. The reason that that works is because the swap function on Osmosis is unpermission. It's basically an unauthenticated function. Anybody can call that. Anybody can do a swap. And so it's totally okay for some service provider to do it on your behalf. And you can encode on-chain that they do this in a way that's like where, where you can enforce that they will actually pay out the funds to you. However, let's take a slightly different use case. Say osmosis needs to go through a governance upgrade. Um, and so now this is a function, this is a, something that is happening as part of osmosis system that only governance can actually enact. Um, it can only be enacted through a certain set of permissioned actors. And now imagine, I mean, I guess this isn't exactly, this is kind of where the analogy breaks down and works a lot better with Uniswap. But say, for example, like this permission function is uh, is actually being enacted by a group of actors that are on a different chain. So like some group of five multi-sig owners are the ones that are making this update on, on os uh, osmosis. And, um, and they need to make a, they need to send a cross chain message from whatever chain they're on to osmosis to upgrade the system. Um, how do, how do the osmosis, how does the osmosis chain know that the message came from those five actors? Um, because this is an authenticated call, they need to prove that it came from those five actors. And the only way to do that is to actually prove that that was included in the, in the other chain. Um, you there's no possible way for those five actors to pay a service provider to do it on their behalf, because if they paid a service provider to do it on their behalf, that service provider could just do an upgrade whenever they wanted. And there's no, also no way for the five actors to, I mean, maybe they could have like a ring signature or something like that collectively, like sign a threshold signature, but it's a little bit of a, like a custom use case. So imagine if you scale this up to like a, you know, a governance system of tens of thousands of participants, obviously at that point, there's no way for them to come up with any kind of cryptographic proof that would actually prove across chains that this was supposed to happen. Um, so that's actually where all of this stuff hinges on. Like the, the core thing that any bridge is trying to do is, is to figure out a way to have one chain prove to another chain that something happened and that's it. Easy, easy, right? <laughs> Very difficult to do in practice, <laughs> yeah. but yeah. Just, yeah, we can just hire some guy to do it. Yeah, yeah. if chains uh, could sign messages themselves, this would not be a problem. Like if, yeah. <laughs> if we yeah. had the cryptography, if we could just invent the cryptography to do this, bridging would just dis disappear overnight. Yeah. <laughs> What what makes so so um, I, I guess for like I I, 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 mean, I feel like there's a a, a little bit of um, bridge bridges are getting a bad rap you know um, <laughs> you know and we're and, in and the trough like, of disillusionment for bridges right now for yeah, sure yeah there, <laughs> there's um so any, anything that well I think there's a, so a few things one, one is what is what is what what a bridge is I think gets just uh, put under one umbrella, right? So all these different technologies sort of get put under the same, like this is a bridge, right? Without dis, yeah. without um, 
uh, differentiating what is natively verified, externally verified, what's a multi-sig, what's just some guidance basement, and like what's locally yep. verified, et cetera, uh, optimistic, et cetera. Um, then uh, what happens is, you know, bridges get hacked, as has been the case. And, you know, most recently, and we'll talk about it, like Nomad was hacked um, and people lost funds. I lost funds. Uh, yep. And so, um, and then there's like this mistrust of anything that gets labeled a bridge. So how can people make better decisions about what technologies to use? And I guess, you know, one big question that and I'm sure you guys have thought about this is how do you instill trust in people to use your tech when no one, uh, most people that use it, I guess, maybe don't know how it works or, you know, yeah. I think like most people using Axel are like, probably have no, idea how, works, no yeah. idea how it actually works right yeah i mean to be fair i think most people using the internet know how it works yeah exactly <laughs> yeah. yeah um yeah i mean i think um it's it's difficult so i think you're totally right we're like in a period right now where we've i think we've like we're getting close to hitting like bottom sentiment for bridges and i think it's been like a series of ever increasingly like just ever increasing amount tax right like uh, you know, like when the $300 million wormhole hack happened, I was like, all right, fuck, this is, this is it. Like, this is, this is basically like, people are just going to hate bridges now. And then, and then we topped that with the like $650 million Ronin hack. And like the funds weren't even returned from that. So it was just like, it was uh, like, that was already just such a bad thing. And I think the one thing that was kind of like pushing, helping the bridge narrative along was this idea that like, okay, well, we can have safe bridges. Like here is Nomad as an example of a really, really safe bridge. And then Nomad got hacked too. And like, I think it just goes to show that like, this stuff is really fucking hard. It is. Um, like blockchains themselves are really, really difficult to build. But if you think about it, every single blockchain, like basically every single blockchain that has been built has, has, has effectively at some point, like at least like intellectually been a fork of Bitcoin. Right. So we've had like Bitcoin, like created a blueprint and then people just forked the shit out of it. And then it's like evolved over time. And like every every change has been like incremental on top of something that already existed. Whereas with bridges, it's it's not like that at all. It's like fully from scratch. We are trying to figure out how how to think about these problems from the get go without any sort of context on like the right way to do them and and build them. Right. So you the the scope of risk is higher. In addition to that, I think like there's also like a, a big difference, like, of course, there's like the economic security of bridges. So you have, you know, the, the economic security out of a, of a five out of seven multi-sig is obviously really fucking terrible, right? Um, the economic security of, you know, uh, layer zero's relay oracle system is really, really, really not great. Um, but at the same time, the, the, you also have implementation security. And that's, that's the under, other piece that I think is like really, really under, underestimated and appreciated, which is like, the vast majority of bridge hacks are not happening. I mean, they will eventually happen because of like economic attacks and stuff like that. But right now they're happening because of like bugs in the code. Um, and unlike with, you know, a chain in, you know, in, in a chain, like you'll have like a, like, a fa like a consensus failure, but you can restart the chain. You can roll back and restart the chain. You can't do that with a bridge. Like once, once a bridge gets hacked, it's hacked. There's nothing you can really do about it. Yeah. Um, so I think the stakes are just far, far higher. Um, yeah. Now, how do we actually get to the point where people trust this stuff? I think in general, there needs to be a much, much larger conversation about security for bridges. Um, we are now trying to 
we're, we've done a bunch of analysis on this and we're about, we're like trying to publish a lot of this work that we've been doing. Um, Lane, one of my co-founders gave a talk at, um, at Stanford last week um, about bridge security, which just like breaks down the different kinds of like, basically like the security surface area of cross-chain communication in general. Um, and, uh, and then also talks about like, well, why do we even, why do we even need this in the first place? Right? Like, do we, do we actually need this stuff? And the, the reality is we do, like, there's no way for us to, if we want this, this ecosystem to succeed, we have to figure this problem out. We have to, like, there's like single blockchains just don't scale. They, they just don't. Um, and there's no point in having a bunch of single blockchains that don't talk to each other. Um, and yeah. so, and then, and so like, I think, I think the answer is going to come down to a bunch of different things. There's going to be the economic security pieces, which we've been harping on a lot. Um, I think in general, bridges are going to have to start holding themselves to a much higher standard in terms of economic security, like no more like five out of seven multi-sigs, no more situations where like you are storing a bunch of keys on a server somewhere that can get hacked. That's fucking terrible. Like that just cannot happen. Like if you, if you're like an early stage bridge, like it, it might make sense. But if you have hundreds of millions of dollars, that is like, you wouldn't put hundreds of millions of dollars into like a, a five out of seven multi-sig that like you're putting like on your own computer. That doesn't make any sense either. Like where the keys are just like stored on your computer. Um, that's terrifying. Um, and so it doesn't make sense to have that be like the MO for bridges. And, uh, and I think like optimistic bridges are still like the right way to move forward there because you can turn any multi-sig bridge into an optimistic bridge very, very easily. And like, it's not, it's like, in, and in, like, obviously that provides competition for us when you do that, but I'm advocating for it because it's just better for the industry. <laughs> um, and then beyond that, there's like the implementation risk. And I think like implementation wise, every single bridge now needs to move towards a pattern where they just implement like a set of standards that we're actually trying, we're, we're like um, thinking about doing this. We've talked to a few people about it. I, Polygon has also expressed interest in doing this, but basically building like a bridge security framework that is just a set of libraries on, in, on Ethereum um, that every single bridge can inherit. And then maybe porting that over to other ecosystems too. And those libraries are like heavily, heavily audited, very standardized, and they just provide some core functionality that every single bridge needs for security. And that will be things like rate limits, right? Uh, it should not be possible to exit more than like let's say 10% of the funds on a bridge of, a, of sufficient size within a certain number of blocks. That just doesn't make sense, right? Like if, if, if that's happening, it's probably a hack and you should just halt immediately. So any situation where that happens, the bridge should just halt. Um, having watchers, even if you're not an optimistic bridge, just having a system where like you can have a decentralized set of actors, just stop the system because they saw something go wrong. Um, having like even just basic like disconnections, um, like being able to like, limit contagion risk by basically saying like, okay, this chain has gotten hacked, you know, a chain got 51% attack. Let's uh, cordon off that chain by disconnecting all the bridges that interact with it. So now at least there's like no outflow of funds from there and having that be built into every bridge system, because a lot of systems don't even have that right now. They can't, they don't have the granular control to say, okay, this system is just going to get shut off or this chain is just chain support is just going to get shut off. Yeah. Um, I think those kinds of steps are what's needed at this point. Like we need those like circuit breakers basically. Yeah, and I think I, like practically that makes sense. I think yeah. there, if I'm playing devil's advocate here, there's definitely a case to be made for. Well, there's there's definitely a a a fear that circuit breakers can be used to censor, if not sufficiently decentralized, or where, yeah. um, you know, having a multi-sig that implements a circuit breaker, you know, like is not. Yeah, for, for, I think for a lot of people, that doesn't pass the the bar of like. Uh, yep. a system being fully decentralized. So yeah, I, I agree that this is not easy because like once you start getting into a sufficient scale, if there's a hack going on, 
you're not you're not going to wait five days for a governance proposal to go through to turn off. Yeah, it doesn't make um, sense. Yeah, <laughs> to, to turn off a chain or a top for bridge or like cordon off like a blockchain or like you said. Um, yeah, I'd like to talk about the I different. Think the, I, I yeah. think the automated oh, rate limits is really the big one. Like I, I think I'm like uh, the more I think about it, the more I think having just like automated rate limits on bridges is is just makes sense, right? Like hmm. it just doesn't make sense for. If, if like any bridge that has a bunch of liquidity in it, like Nomad, for instance, right? It, it doesn't make sense. Realistically speaking, like, you know, maybe maybe 10% isn't enough. Like, you know, as if you're like a relatively smaller bridge or something like that, but you could you could just scale that with time um, mm. and set like caps and basically continue to increase the caps over time as like you get better and better security. Yeah. Um, that's actually what we're doing now. We we have our, our new security model. We're going to be like publishing a blog post on our security framework, but it's, it's just, we were just like, after everything happened, we were like, wow, yeah, we just need to like really go be astoundingly pedantic and so we're just like setting caps and like where you'll only be able to put a certain amount of liquidity into the bridge and then we'll keep increasing the caps as we do like formal verification and basically have rate limits and then as the rate limit size goes down the cap limits the cap limits will increase so hmm. uh, and vice versa so like you know you have a billion dollar bridge five percent you know or something like that you say five percent of the liquidity should not just disappear overnight that's obviously a bit, really really big concern yeah yeah, I think this makes sense. Like, if you can have these rate limits and then they get reevaluated over time, like through governance proposals and things like that, then it's prob probably a good so solution, at least in the interim. Um, yeah, well, I'd like to talk about the stack a little bit um, because, I, you know, I, I've used I've used Connects uh, to move funds across the EVM chains. Um, I I was looking at some of the documentation and stuff, and I noticed you were talking about IBC and um, XCMP, which are these, you know, trust minimized, um, natively verified protocols. And I see that in your stack, and I'm like, how does that fit in there? So, you know, what, what what's like the future state of of Connect, and how does you know how do things like IBC fit into uh, the more long-term Connects vision. Yeah. Um, so, I mean, I, I don't think IBC is going anywhere. I think IBC is an incredibly powerful system and protocol. I mean, it's a framework, right? It's a framework for doing cross-chain communication with like pluggable proving systems. And the, the main proving system is Light Client. Um, I think in some cases, IBC and, and Light Client-based IBC is like, is just too heavyweight for certain types of systems. But that doesn't mean that it's like, a bad system. It just means it's not like a it's not a one like it's not like a one size fits all solution. And realistically, there just isn't going to be a one size fits all solution. Um, that actually, I think, is my biggest takeaway from a lot of this. Is like, in the long run, it's probably going to be the case that like just like the internet itself, there will be like a bunch of heterogeneous different networks, and like we'll have ways for those networks to like communicate with each other. You'll have basically like the blockchain slash bridge version of BGP, which is the Border Gateway Protocol, which like lets you communicate between networks that are speaking different languages. Um, and uh, and I think that that's, I think that makes a lot of sense because like in, in, in trying to scale a bridge protocol to do everything, it becomes bad at anything. <laughs> um, and uh, and uh, so my, my kind of thesis is like, um, bridges are going to go in the same direction that blockchains are. They're going to become really modular. Um, uh, we are already kind of doing this. We have kind of started repositioning ourselves as like a liquidity layer. Um, and then we, you know, like we, we have, we, especially like when we were working with Nomad, like we were, we were positioning ourselves as like the liquidity layer and then Nomad was the messaging layer. And so like when you, uh, you, you, any interaction that like any time developers in integration that was interconnects and like 
connects with like kickoff transactions and then we would pass messages down to Nomad. And then they would, all of that would kind of go across chains together. Um, and so it gives you like this full stack experience. And it makes sense to do that because, you know, there is going to be instances where you'll need to like swap these things out, I think realistically in the long term. So um, the reason that things like IBC and XCMP have been in our docs for a while is because like a part of our thesis has been that like, you know, IBC will provide incredibly good communication amongst Cosmos chains. So instead of trying to like beat IBC at its own game, um, it makes sense to have just a consistent interface. And I think like Composable, a couple of other projects are thinking about things in the same way. Uh, basically have a consistent yeah. interface across all chains and like uh, have like underlying routing to get to the right kind of bridge network. Um, yeah, so like the messaging Polymer layer can kind of be- in this category where like, of having like a yeah. consistent interface that, and then, and then I guess to talk to all the different, um, all the different protocols. Yeah, I mean, I think it makes sense. Um, now on, on our end, I think like the liquidity layer piece is, is another piece like that, where it's like, you know, it may make like the network effects of liquidity layers may make it more of a like, less sort of like fragmented. It may, it may actually end up begetting a more kind of um, uh, long tail distribution rather than a fragmented one. Um, but I, I, I'm absolutely certain that there's like, there's no way, like, you know, I'm, there, a lot of our competitors are, are just, they're, they're, they're not going to like die. Like, you know, we will compete with them. Uh, even if we win more market share, even if they win more market share, like we're all going to continue existing because this market is growing so much. So like by the time it becomes competitive enough that, uh, you know, we're, we're now like competing to take each other's market share and like competing to take each other's users rather than just like growing along with the market. Um, it's going to be far down the line, and and I'm sure, but like all of the core teams will, by that point, have just like exited the community anyway. Mm. So I think, like for now, it's just it's going to be a heterogeneous ecosystem for sure. Yeah. So so is is this the in in your stack like you have this NXTP, yeah. the which is like the next uh, next protocol? Is that right? Yeah, that's basically um, that's like the liquidity layer that we have, okay. and that's that's the kind of like locally verified system that allows you to send uh, basically swap tokens across swap tokens and do some type of like limited types of calls across chains. Um, now the idea was like to layer that on top of a messaging layer like Nomad because then we don't need to, so this is one of the kind of like downsides of what exists currently is like we, we use signatures as a mechanism to verify like two parties interacting across chains, right? Um, needing to go and actually sign additional transactions and stuff is just a giant pain for users. So like abstracting that away involves sending those messages through the chain itself, through some other bridging mechanism or through some messaging layer. Um, and Nomad, Nomad was playing that role. Like we, we would basically like fast execute transactions on top of Nomad. They would happen immediately instead of in 30 minutes. And then afterwards yeah. there would be like a reconciliation that happens once the message goes over the Nomad bridge. Yeah. Um, and that model works across the ecosystem. Like it works with rollups. It works with, you know, like the Polygon POS bridge, it works with, it will work with IBC as well. Okay. So, so the idea is to like leverage this liquidity layer and to then work with like rollups, uh, protocols like IBC, other bridge protocols that might exist, you know, in, in ecosystems like uh, XC, MP and, and so on. And yep. yeah, I, I guess to come back to this idea of, you know, trust, um, you know, when it, when it, com when it comes down to it though, like connects being a liquidity protocol, there's always a risk that those contracts can, can get hacked. Like that is, that's a yeah. non-zero risk. Um, you know, are, are the, like, are these rate limits and, 
the, these sorts of um, mechanisms to help prevent you know, massive liquidity being exited from the system. Um, you know, are, are, are these the things that you would, that you would um, be a promote proponent of implementing here at this level? Or are there like other things that yeah. we can do here? Yeah. yeah. I mean, we are implementing these things right away, right? Like we have caps and stuff that will be going live with our system very, very soon. Um, we have, uh, we, we think that everybody should be doing it immediately because it's just like, it's just, it's like this whole space can't move forward until bridges stop getting hacked. <laughs> it's just, it, you know, it's like, and this, this happens and it, it happened, for instance, with DeFi, there was a period in DeFi where like, there were just a ton of hacks and it was just because yeah. like, you know, people hadn't figured out what to do yet. Like we didn't have great practices in place. And like, there were a lot of scams. There was a lot of like random shit being built that just had no right to be built to be built. And it was being shipped off to, to mainnet without an audit. And like people were aping tens of millions or hundreds of millions of dollars of credit into it. And then it was getting hacked. Um, the difference is that the scale of those hacks is a lot smaller, right? Like with bridges, you know, it's, you're, you're not just talking about like, Oh, this is a single application that had like, you know, $10 million in it or $50 million in it, whatever. It's like this bridge is now the gate point, gateway to an entire blockchain or sometimes several entire blockchains, right? And like, if that bridge disappears, that entire chain's ecosystem is fucked. Like, the, like you, every single person on that chain is now holding unbacked assets. It's a, it's, it's a nightmare scenario, right? Like the, the stakes are just so, so much higher. And so I think like the, as a result, the security practices need to be so much higher, right? We need to, we as a collective need to do a much better job of like being careful and focusing on doing it the right way rather than, I mean, it's so hard because everybody wants to scale, um, but we need to focus. I think like we need, we, peop, I think we need to really, really consider like, okay, if there is a hundred million dollars in this bridge, like that needs to be an extraordinarily robust system. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I think coming, coming to consensus around good security practices is certainly something that the industry needs to do. I think there's also a higher level amount of consensus that needs to happen around what are the technologies that are best suited for usability, security, and compatibility uh, across the board. And you know, I, like, I, I think, I think IBC has a lot going for it in terms of being able to, um, aggregate a lot of, um, a lot of use, uh, mm -hmm. across ecosystems, so like beyond just like the standard Cosmos SDK chain. Um, but it feels like, it feels like the crypto industries, I mean, look, other industries have, have been through this before. Like we, we have standards that exist in all sorts of domains. So from things like video encryption and compression yeah. standards to like MPEG and things like that, or um, fucking plugs, man, like <laughs> wall outlets, right? Like, I mean, these standards have been around for a really long time, um, but standards exist in, in, in like in, in computer science and like whether it's hardware or software, there's like tons of standards that exist that have been adopted and that are like where there's some dominant standards and the way that industries have done that is like consortiums, um, yeah. organizations like, uh, the W3C, right. 
uh, have have working groups then they work for years to come to standards on things like html and css and like all these web technologies that we use and then you have like ieee and they work on yep. other types of standards and i i'd love to see these sorts of governing bodies um gain traction in crypto and one of the things that like seems obvious is, is like a starting problem is bridging and interoperability yeah um but you know, I think the trade-off there is that then you just have capture by massive companies. So who sits at the W3C? Well, Google, Apple, Firefox, like Mozilla, yeah. um, and and some universities, of course. But like, not the individual developer or the individual web user, or at least not yeah. to my knowledge. Or and so so there's definitely a trade-off to growing as an as an industry and moving down this route. Is that you know, the yeah. millions of people who use crypto and who think they have sort of like a stake uh, in in um, in the way these technologies get developed suddenly, you know, have less or at least less less apparent, um, you know, um, say in how like these things end up being implemented. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it's, it's definitely a huge challenge because it's like, you know, um, with situations like the W3C, like, you know, you have these very, very large organizations that are like sort of competing with each other, but they're also large enough that, it, you know, they're in a position where like they're frenemies, right? Like they work together and simultaneously work together and compete with each other. I mean, like, like Google is larger than nation states. Like it's just ridiculous. Um, and, and I think like the other difference here is like you have a bunch of startups, right? Like um, uh, small, small to mid-sized organizations that are just like trying to find product market fit and trying to make sure that they like survive. And so they're, the incentives are also kind of difficult. Um, I mean, we've, I've been in this situation before, like when I was working on, like Connects was working on state channels for a while and there was a huge like push to try to do a lot of standardization around state channels. Um, and it, it, there was this always this like big question of like, okay, well, Bitcoin has done it, right? Like everybody, every everyone in Bitcoin is just like following the same interface around Lightning. Like, why can't we do the same thing in with state channels? Why are there so many different organizations with like completely different implementations? And I, I think the answer to that is because like Lightning is kind of a monopoly, right? Like it was basically one monopolized sort of like mental model that um, hasn't really like changed at all. Um, and I mean, it's, it's still kind of being, I mean, obviously there's like multiple different organizations and different people like contributing to it, but it's not, it's not a bunch of different ideas around, uh, around doing scalable payments on Bitcoin. It's like one yeah, single I mean, idea. People are giving the, the feature set on it. Bitcoin sort of makes it difficult, I think, to that come <laughs> to other solutions on how to do this, right? You already, you're already like in a very restrained environment. And so like one good solution is, probably the only like the only solution, the solution yeah. yeah the solution yeah 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 i mean um, i think yeah. like the other piece of this is of course like for better or for worse i think a, a big part of the way that standards have been set in the space is basically just like projects winning dominant market share and then just setting something and then it ends up being something that everybody adopts right like it just sort of becomes a colloquial thing yeah um and it, i mean it doesn't not work yeah, um, no, it has led us to a bunch of shitty standards but it doesn't not work yeah um, uh, or it's arbitrary right like 18 decimal points yeah. in ethereum erc20 tokens kind of ridiculous decision doesn't doesn't really make any sense 18 decimal points it's a lot of decimal points it's a lot of precision for <laughs> why does it make sense <laughs> yeah and i think um, i think evmos maybe has a different standard there i think they don't yep. have 18 decimal points or something um yeah yep. for some reason i don't know i have to ask today uh yeah, yeah. 
And, uh, and I think the other piece of, of this is also going to be that like the, the challenges that each ecosystem has around things like bridging are also going to be slightly different, right? So like, for example, like the biggest, a lot of the big challenges around like bridging in the Ethereum ecosystem is going to be around like the security of the bridge. Um, whereas in Cosmos, it's kind of a solved problem. It's pretty awesome. However, Cosmos has another problem and IBC has this problem, which is like uh, IBC lets you do like point to point communication between all of these different chains, but it doesn't necessarily like discriminate between the security models of the chains themselves. So like if you, you can have a uh, extremely secure chain connected via IBC to a chain that only has like a handful of validators and people go and att 51% attack this chain and then they can use that and IBC to then go attack this chain. That, that is also a itself a problem. It is a problem, but I see it as less of a problem. And like the analogy that I have here is, you know, you can be in a city and use a bridge to go to the bad side of town. You do that in your of your own volition and knowing that you're going to a part of town that's like maybe not the best part of town, but at least, you know, you're not going to like the bridge is not going to fall under your feet, you know? And, right. But I think in this case, yeah. the difference is like, the bad part of town can, there's no sort of like mechanism on the bridge to start. I mean, I don't, this is a bad analogy. Um, but I think that, I think the issue is basically yeah, if you go to the like, bad side of town, you can, you get can have up or like you can get mugged. Right? No, no, no. no. <laughs> but also everybody from that side can come to the good side of town and do whatever the hell they want. And there's nothing stopping them. That's the issue. And the, 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 the problem that's is the like case, in yeah. this, <laughs> in well, the real world, yeah, the, the problem case. is basically like you have, you have this, um, uh, like, for example, like the big sort of thing that everybody pushed back on with like the Ronin bridge and everybody was really upset about was like, it's a five out of seven multi-sig, right? Now imagine if you, so, and like, that was the issue. Now what, what was happening with Ronin was like, it was not only the fact that the bridge was a five out of seven multi-sig, it wasn't, it was basically like the, the entire chain was reading the state of Ethereum, right? It was, it was actually like a trustless bridge going the direction of, of, uh, of Ronin. The, the problem was the Ronin, there was only seven Ronin validators to begin with, like, the five out of seven was five out of the seven Ronin validators. The same exact problem exists in IBC and, and Cosmos, right? You could have a, you could have like the, the Cosmos hub chain connected to a, another Cosmos chain with seven validators that has a five out of seven threshold for, for making updates that will have, and, and you're communicating using IBC. When you do that, the fact that you're using IBC will make zero difference. That will have the exact same security as the Ronin five out of seven multiple. And that's a problem, right? Like that's, that's an intrinsic issue that I think a lot of people don't realize. And it exists, I mean, it exists everywhere, but it, it ends up being more of a concern on something like in, in the Cosmos ecosystem and for a Cosmos related bridging than for like Ethereum related bridging, which has happening on rollups and you don't have this problem at all. Hmm. Yeah, yeah. yeah I, I see what you mean, but I still feel like, yeah, maybe, yeah. I mean, I, I feel like as long here, like when you move tokens over, over IBC, if you're moving your tokens over to somewhere that has good security, your tokens are not getting lost in that in that in that transfer transaction. If you're moving your tokens to somewhere that has bad security, then that's that's a risk that you're that you're taking. And now, do we need to have you know secure chains and maybe like some some sort of community vetting around what I what um, uh, which IBC channels sort of get pushed to the top or which are uh, which IBC channels are sort of notified as okay, like this chain is not passing a certain security threshold. Like that's that's a that's more of a like a, a social problem than a technology problem. And like we've we've solved that in some sense with like web technologies. Right now, I'm like looking at a website that's got a little 
lock on it. I know it's a secure connection because that's like a user experience thing that we've developed and we've come to consensus around how to do that. And I think we can probably, and we'll probably end up with the same thing with blockchains where you'll have chains that pass some sort of security um, or like trust threshold. And yeah. uh, those can be sort of like labeled or, you know, somehow like indicated in user user interfaces to, to users. Well, not just user interfaces, know? also on-chain integrations. Like, yeah. for example, yeah. as an application or a chain that is connected via IBC to other chains, you will not be able to accept connections from chains with below a certain level of security. Because if you do, yeah. like, for example, say you have a... Uh, you know, say you have a Cosmos chain that has like the bank module installed, right? And like mm. that bank module is connected to like three other chains connected via IBC. So like say your Osmosis, right? You're connected yeah. via three to three other chains. Um, and two of those chains uh, are totally fine, right? They have a high amount of security. One of them doesn't. Um, yeah. The problem is that one chain with a low security can not only attack Osmosis, it can also through Osmosis attack every single other chain. And they could do that basically. And it could, it could even, unless you had a check to stop this, that chain that that like the 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 osmosis bank module is connected to can basically go and mint an arbitrary number of tokens on osmosis it can do mm -hmm. this because it can come up, come to consensus independently that oh there are a bunch of funds going to the system even though there aren't um, that can be used to mint funds on osmosis and then those funds can then be effectively like laundered out to every other chain um, and it spreads right that's that's okay. the contagion they risk. could mint funds like, they could mint funds of their own chain like they could mint their own token but not they like, could basically just pretend as though funds were sent over the bridge, even though they weren't. Oh, uh, okay. And so therefore you have a problem like yeah. with fungibility, yeah. you know. So from the perspective of the osmosis bank module, yeah. Osmosis is believing messages that come over IBC because it thinks whatever's coming over this is corresponding to something that happened on the other chain. And what this message is telling me that there were you know, $100 million of tokens were burned on that chain, $100 million mm. of USDC was burned on that chain. And so I'm, I get to mint $100 million of USDC here. But, and yeah. this can happen without compromising IBC whatsoever, that chain could just 51, be 51% attacked to pretend to mint those tokens and not actually mint them to begin with. I think this, was, this sounds really similar to the issue that Evmos had with their... There was a bug in in Evmos early on where they had to, um, yeah. I mean, this was the this was sort of like the bug that that halted Evmos to begin with, right? Is like that there was a way to create arbitrary chains and then send IBC transactions pretending that to Evmos, yeah. to Evmos. Yeah, I mean, I have to go back and look at it. It sounds like a similar sort of attack. Yeah, um, there yeah, was a okay. post that was written by Vitalik on this exact attack called multi-chain not cross-chain. I mean, I. I don't. The, yeah, I think yeah. the conclusions of the post are the conclusion of the post is that bridging is terrible. But I, I don't. I don't agree with that conclusion. I think there are ways yeah. to curtail the risk of this. But it is something to be concerned about for sure. Yeah. So we we sort of talked about this throughout the conversation, but uh, sort of like peppered through. And I, I can see here in the chat that a lot of people are asking about um, about the Nomad hack. So how did the Nomad hack affect uh, connects and connect connects users and um, you know, uh, I should probably get their team to come back on the podcast. But you know, what what's you know? Can you talk to us what the status is there about um, how they're yeah. progressing to either like get the funds back or you know, more importantly, you know, survive long term as a team yeah. as a project? Um, so I think like, I mean, I, I think the first thing to say here is like, 
so we're super close to the Nomad team. Um, you know, we we were obviously ex extremely closely partnered with them on a technical basis, but even even more generally, like uh, James was like one of the first people I knew in the space, and like uh, I had basically knew him because I like randomly emailed him to ask him if, for advice when he was working at Storage back in like 2016 or 2017. Um, and he was the only he was like one of the few people that I had emailed out of like 50, 60 people who was nice enough to reply and like actually have a conversation with me. Um, and, uh, and I, and I think like in general, the team is just a bunch of people who really, really, really actually give a shit about this space and really like want to push bridging forward. They wanted to like build something that mattered and actually helps, helps the ecosystem. Um, and, and they, I think like, you know, we're doing a lot of this for the right reasons, right? They wanted to like make bridges more secure, um, using optimistic systems. So what happened was, was not only, I mean, unlucky uh, because I guess it's just like it, it could they, this is something that could have should have been caught but it just wasn't um, not only were they like unlucky but it was this is also just like extremely devastating extremely unfortunate that it happened to a team that really like has been trying to do the right thing for so long um, I think um, one of the things that was unique about this attack compared to any other hack that's happened in the space is like it was less of a hack and more of like a decentralized looting <laughs> Like, um, you know, we, we've, we, when it was happening, we, we spent time like trying to figure out like in the early days, trying to figure out like what actually happened and things like that. And it seems like a lot of the, a lot of the transactions that were made were made basically by mistake, right? It was basically like the initial set of transactions that was made by people who sort of just happened to discover that this, this was a vulnerability, but they, they, they clearly, whoever started it didn't even realize that it was a vulnerability because they didn't take all of the funds. They just submitted a transaction. And then what ended up happening was that that, from the perspective of uh, like mempools on Ethereum and like bots in those mempools, this was a front runnable transaction. This was a profitable transaction that they could MEV snipe. So they, they were just like generalized front running bots that were just like, oh, this is cool. I'm gonna, I'm seeing this as a profitable transaction. I'm just gonna copy paste the transaction with a lot more gas and I'm just gonna keep like, and they all started doing that. And so the entire mempool filled up and that's actually how it was discovered. And once it was discovered, it was posted on Twitter and then it went viral. Um, and, I, and it's it's interesting because the funds from the Nomad hack ended up at like 300 different addresses, not just a handful of like, not just like, oh, this was a hacking group. It was like, yeah, so many people ended up with funds. A lot, a lot of the people lot, didn't even know. A lot of emoji ENS names. <laughs> watermelon, watermelon, watermelon.e. <laughs> yeah, yeah, these guys. Uh, the goat. Um, but yeah, there was a lot of like, uh, I think it's just like fascinating what happened and, and obviously horrifying from the perspective of Nomad because this was like a hack that happened over an extended period of time and watching the kind of numbers go down and trying to rescue what you could is obviously a, such a difficult task. Um, I think like because the funds are spread out over so many different addresses, the complexity of dealing with this hack is just so much higher than anything else that's happened, right? Normally what happens when a hack occurs is like, you know, like, like teams will work to figure out exactly what happened right away. And then like the first thing that they will do is like submit, um, uh, you know, just like submit like an on-chain transaction with a message to the, to the hacker saying like, okay, great. Well done. Like, can you please give the, give us the money back? You can keep like 10 to 20%, whatever. And because that happens quickly and because that is, in most cases, it is like extremely difficult to launder very, very sizable amounts of money. Most hackers will actually just take that deal. And so you teams will get back the funds immediately. In Nomad's case, it's not exactly possible to do that. I mean, they, they offered a bounty and things like that, but like there's just so many people involved in this that like figuring out where all of these funds went is just a much, much bigger challenge. And the how other much, piece of this is like- How much has been paid back? Like, uh, 
I think it's Third about 20% or, or maybe, 20%, maybe it's more yeah. now, actually. I haven't checked uh, recently. Yeah. Um, yeah. yeah. Um, it's somewhere between 20 and 30. Um, but yeah, I think like the, the other thing that made this more complex is that because this wasn't actually like an explicit hack, it was more just like a thing that happened accidentally. A lot of the addresses are doxed, like a lot, like the majority of them are doxed. Yeah. Um, and so I think like, Nomad has had to take a very sort of pedantic and pragmatic approach to work with like chain analysis and work with authorities to figure out like, okay, like how can we track down these addresses, link them to exchange accounts. Now, once, once that process gets started, it just becomes complex, right? Like you're, you're not dealing with a bunch of people in crypto who like move at the speed of light. You're dealing with like organizations that are used to operating on like year long time, time scales, right? Like I'm not saying that that's actually the time scale that where everything is going to transpire, but like the, the, the rate of change is much, much slower. I think, yeah. um, you know, I think like the Nomad team is still working day and night to try to figure this out. Um, they're still like in contact with authorities. They're still trying to, they're trying to target, um, you know, specific accounts and get in touch with them directly to see if they can offer bounties and negotiate deals to get funds back. And they're also working on plans for not only like restarting the bridge. So like to be able to allow people to exit funds, but also to like find alternate, potentially other creative mechanisms to like reimburse users. And I think they feel extremely, extremely strongly that this is like a big thing that they need to make sure goes, is like right for people. And, mm -hmm. and I have a lot of faith in that because like they are fundamentally very good people. It's just like, it's hard to balance the needs of everybody, especially when everyone is like yelling at you in public all the time. Um, and when you also have like, have to kind of like interact with like institutional actors, like investors and uh, uh, chains and, and authorities and chain analysis and things like that and balance their needs as well. Um, are they going to recover? I don't know. Um, I'm still in extremely close contact with Pranay. I still, I have a lot of faith in the team. Um, I think they are top notch. I think they, I think that they're going to do the right thing no matter what. Um, and I think that they are going to try their best to recover. Um, mm. I just think it's going to take time. That's the big thing is like, I, I think in general, we, and I think at, nobody can really expect any, like a lot of material change on this probably for the next like three to six months. It's just going to take a lot of time before they get back to it. Yeah. I, I, I think that, that I would, I would multiply that timeline by two, at least <laughs> it, it just feels, yeah. I, I mean, no, I think the biggest challenge that, this, that they're going to have is reputational a challenge and getting yeah. people's trust back and having people trust the nomad brand and the team behind it. And, um, you know, for you know, rational, uh, folks who like, you know, know them and know the sort of behind the scenes of, um, how they're implementing things to prevent this from happening. Yeah, sure. Those folks might want to use that again. But for the average person, I think it's going to be difficult to get that trust back. Yeah, um, it is. Yeah. And that's yeah. one and of the big challenges now. It's like, it's really unfortunate. I mean, it's, and it's one of the huge challenges, right? It's like Nomad didn't, you know, isn't like an organization like, you know, I mean, like Wormhole, for instance, like the, this risk existed with Wormhole when the Wormhole hack happened, right? Whereas you could have just been like an entire debugging of like most of the Solana ecosystem. That would have been incredibly horrifying for Solana. Yeah. And, and Jump immediately backstopped it because they realized what happened. And like that happened for Wormhole because, I mean, Wormhole is owned by Jump and like it's, they have a huge incentive. They have such huge bags and everything else in that ecosystem that like not doing that would have meant like 
torching a bunch of their own, like their own capital. Um, and so it was just like a good cost benefit analysis. Um, yeah. that, that doesn't necessarily exist with Nomad because it's not like the same, they're not, they don't have, they're not like hundred percent owned by a large scale market maker, which yeah. is, I mean, it's a good thing, right? Like that's a big part of what made Nomad fantastic was like, they were very like, like pragmatic team that was very independent trying to like actually become a public good. Mm. Um, so yeah, it's, it's difficult. And I, I think like, we'll sort of have to see how things progress. Um, on our end with Pinex, we are still like, we still love the Nomad team. We're still trying to support them however we can. We understand that right now, like I think one of the best ways to support them is just to give them space and like let them have the time to figure this out. Mm. Um, and so we've we've kind of shifted our, we actually came up with an alternative mechanism for like messaging as like a temporary solution that lets us still go live with like about a month, one month delay to our timeline. So um, that'll roughly be like at the start of October. Um, and, uh, and we, we basically get to do exactly, have exactly the same functionality we did before, but we're using existing bridges as transport. So things like roll-up bridges, Polygon POS, et cetera. So you're not taking on any additional trust assumptions beyond the underlying chains themselves. Um, and, uh, and it, it has like some trade-offs, there'll be like some fixed gas cost overhead that the, the team, we will subsidize. Um, um, there will be some like added latency for the slow path of transfers, but, uh, it's a good interim solution. And then in six months, we're going to like you know, see what happens. Like if, you know, if Nomad's able to recover, if where the market, where the market is um, and, uh, and try to figure it out from there. Okay. Yeah. Well, I, I wish you guys all the best with that and uh, certainly like wish them um, the best as well. And hope, hopefully they recover from this. Uh, otherwise I like, you know, market will decide if, uh, if, um, if that's a public good that they want to keep supporting and, if there's a void there, I'm sure someone else will fill it. Yeah. Yeah. So uh, before we wrap up here, when next token? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Um, so we, we've, um, we, so uh, for those of you that know, we, we had announced, um, uh, we had announced the next token a while back. Uh, in, Amsterdam, was, yeah. in Amsterdam. Yeah. It was extremely unfortunately yeah. timed because it was like immediately prior to everything. Like it was like a little bit before everything crashing. We were actually very, very close to launching the token when everything crashed. Um, and we just decided to make, we, we like made the decision of like, okay, there's a lot going on right now. We, we can't even figure out the economics of how to, how to launch this thing. Like it just, it's like every, every week we were coming up with a plan for like how things should work, like how the airdrop should be designed, how, you know, how, like how much tokens should be going out in the airdrop, things like that. And it was based off of a certain like launch valuation or certain estimates for like what we thought like this thing might be valued at, whatever. Um, and then like the next week, everything would like half in price. And we were like, okay, well, we're going to have to restart all the work again. And then it would do, it would do it again. And so we were just like, okay, this is, un while the market is in this situation, it just doesn't make a lot of sense for us to do this. Like, let's just table for the next six months and come back to it. Um, and I think the other thing was that we were also, we, we had also kind of put a lot onto our table at once. We were both trying to shift the Amarok upgrade and then also the token at the same time, which is, doing two things as an organization ever is, is just a terrible idea. Uh, it was, that was a mistake. Um, and now what we've done is we've now laser focused on shipping our upgrade and nothing and nothing else. Um, yeah. So upgrade uh, is now slated for um, October, as I mentioned, we're going to try to basically like probably do like alpha releases, as I mentioned, kind of have like low caps and then increase those caps over time. So we'll do like, uh, an alpha with, you know, an audit and then like uh, with very, very low cap and then do another audit and then increase the cap and then do formal verification, increase the cap, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Um, 
Um, so that process might take like a, a month or so or two. Um, and then um, in, in, I guess in, at the same time, uh, once, once the upgrade goes live, the next item on the docket is the token. Uh, so the, the rest of the team is going to be focused really, really hard on, on making sure that happens. Okay. Um, yeah, I, I really, I mean, it's, it's a challenge and I, I hate giving like timelines for things like this because it, you always end up disappointing people. Um, I mean, we, we had like wanted to launch a year ago, like, <laughs> um, but Launching a token is, an, is token is an extremely difficult thing, um, and uh, and there's a lot of moving pieces. And then when you when it when things get delayed by a few months, you end up having to like scrap a bunch of stuff that you did and then restart all of it again. So it takes even more time. Um, so uh, it's hard to tell, but our our goal is as soon as possible after this upgrade. Okay, and we we didn't talk about the the Amarok upgrade, but yeah, maybe just a brief word on that and what it entails. Yeah. Um, so yeah, so I mean, you know, uh, where Connect is right now is like uh, it's largely used for transfers of value um, for with like the Connect bridge, and then also by like a few integrators that have like uh, basically put this put this experience as part of their application. So things like Leafi, which is a bridge ag aggregator, Layer Swap, which is like letting you do card payments to any chain, etc. One key thing that we have tried to focus on, and we've always been like a very developer-focused organization. One thing that we've tried to focus on now with this upgrade is like moving towards a world where we have fully trust-minimized, generalizable communication between chains. Um, so our thesis, and you know, this is similar to like the Axelar thesis and Layer Zero thesis and stuff like that. And it's been it's been that way for a while. But our thesis is that like the future is going to be a bunch of applications that actually probably interact with multiple chains simultaneously. Like either, either users will be interacting with them across chains or the apps themselves will just live on multiple chains at the same time. Um, I think this makes sense because it's actually how the internet works today, right? Like yeah. when you are building a web application, you're interacting with resources asynchronously that are around the world via APIs. And like, that's, that's like a normal part of how you think about application development. And that's actually exactly what we're building now is like um, the Amarok upgrade is introduces this new primitive called xcall. Um, it maps in Solidity, there's a lower level function called call, um, which is basically just how you like interact with another contract. You just call the function. Um, and uh, and we, we've created xcall as a, as a function that kind of maps to maps to call. And what it does is it allows you to do like an asynchronous call that goes across chains. And not only can you do an async call, you can also specify a callback. So like in JavaScript, you can uh, go and get something from another chain, uh, specify a callback. Um, so when that data comes back, that callback automatically gets executed. Um, and, uh, and you can have like this asynchronous programming environment on top of, on top of blockchains that, that, you're, that developers are already kind of familiar with. That's super um, yeah, I think it's going to be a really, really interesting primitive. And we're really excited to see what people build with it. Very cool. Well, uh, looking forward to it. When's that? When's the upgrade? Um, so we're targeting uh, October-ish. Yeah. Okay. Cool. We'll look forward to that. And uh, yeah, so I mean, thank you so much for all your time here. It's been great diving deep uh, into yeah. uh, into Connects and just I think just talking about bridging is just so interesting because it's such a such an interesting space that has uh, all the drama that you would expect and love, and then also like yeah. lots of interesting technical challenges and. Um, so yeah, I love it, and um, looking forward to seeing where our, um, you know all these new, like the Amarok upgrade and everything, what people will be building with that as well. So thank you so much for coming on. Absolutely, yeah. Thanks so much for having me. Appreciate it. Talk to you soon. Cheers.